Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now, here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to another great episode of Crushing Cashflow. With me today, a big welcome to Mr. Tommy Brandt. Tommy, nice to meet you. <laughs> I like that opening, strong. Andrew, it's a blast being here. As I mentioned before, I've listened to a number of your shows and you've got some truly great, great guests. So I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So a little bit about Tommy's background. He's a recovering electrical engineer. I love how you put that. <laughs> and data scientist turned full-time real estate investor. He's based out of Nashville, Tennessee, and he started TB Capital Group as a tool to help friends, family, and partners accelerate wealth through passive investing in real estate. Love that. He's currently invested in over 130 units, totaling over $11 million in assets. A really strong start. Again, welcome to the show, Tommy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. So let's start off with a topic that's near and dear to, I think, almost all of our listeners is you recently made a pretty severe career change. Much like a lot of my friends and family, you know, investors, technology professionals, you know, data scientists, that's all my language that I know quite well, my W-2 side of things. So you recently made the change. How long ago did you change ever being an investor full-time? I gave my 100-day notice in March of last year, March of okay. 2021. So you're coming up on a year now. Uh, Correct. Yeah, so was- full-time since August. So what pushed you over the edge? For me, so I started out as an electrical engineer, a lot of roles through that were customer-facing, a lot of roles in sales, but I attribute it most of what pushed me over the edge as to my latest role. That's where I developed a lot of confidence. I was basically a business analyst, worked in sales operations. So I'm basically you know, managing an arm of a global electrical distribution manufacturer, not small by any means, but you know, understanding what are those systems, processes, and tools that we can use to understand our pipelines. In real estate, it's you know, marrying the investor pipelines to the deal pipelines. But over there, it's understanding the pipelines, the forecasts, you know, people's salaries rely on that stuff. There was a little bit of fiduciary responsibilities by administering bonus payouts and compensation plan design. I would say that I felt like I overcome a lot with that one because it was such a sharp turn and career path for me. So I had to overcome some things like imposter syndrome. It definitely scratched my entrepreneur itch because it was such drastically different. There really wasn't a whole lot defined when I came into that role. It was kind of just like, all right, Tommy, here's a bunch of the plates that are in the air, keep them spinning. And by the way, we want to make it better. So make other plates spin and all that stuff. And so that gave me a little bit of taste of what's it like if I just had to survive. I'm just thrown into the lion's den and and make things work. So confidence through that is definitely a big one for me. So two things to that to me there, confidence was a big one. And I think we can all relate to that. Another one was you found a point of commonality, right? Like what am I doing today? There's transferable skills in almost everything we do. You talked about the data, the analysis, huge part of underwriting, huge part of market research, huge part of picking a property and picking a business plan. So you found that commonality, which I think it really helps people get over the line. You know, when it came time to pulling the trigger, what was going through your head? Did you have to build up reserves financially? What, you know, what was going through your head? Help us there. 
For sure, for sure. Yeah. So my first investment property I bought in 2011, and I promise this is going to get come back around to answering your question. Love it. And so whenever, I guess in 2020, we liquidated that property, kind of took a look at our finances. And then, you know, my wife was still working. We haven't had kids. We took a look at our current situation and just said, Hey, you know, if I'm looking at a three to five year outlook for starting a business like this, I think we'll be okay if we take a hit, you know, for one or two years. So we made sure that we were capitalized to take a risk for 12 to 24 months on a business like this. And so it was really a calculated risk. I'd love to have gotten to the point where I said, or where I have enough real estate assets to offset my income but you know now it's time to go you know full bore in real estate but I had gotten a taste and I'd seen the trajectory and I'd seen the path and and then we just made a calculated risk no I love that I love the thought process behind it and I think I wanted to point out one thing that always goes through my mind people ask me the same question or they ask advice for their own scenarios you have the long-term outlook right yes almost every time you change careers change jobs you know trajectory to a business take a risk there's going to be a short-term consequence but it's a long-term benefit right and if you never take risks, you really never know what can happen. So I love that. As you know, well, real estate's a team sport. So you're not doing this on your own, I'm sure. How did you go about selecting partners and how did you go about finding them? What was your thought process there? For sure. Yeah. And so I'll compare it single family to multifamily space because in the single family space, you can probably do it by yourself. You know, you can probably, you know, analyze properties, bring deals to realtors, you know, off the MLS. That's how I got my first three base hits were off the MLS in 2020. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, you know, that far into the past. So even in a competitive environment, I would argue that there are deals to be had, but you know, they're probably not going to be home runs, right? But in the single family space, I was effectively, you know, working with really small teams. I'd found a property manager after the properties. I probably could have self-managed, but I tried and I didn't want to. But you know, fast forward to the multifamily space, as soon as you decide, hey, I'm not scaling up my net worth as quickly as I want to in a single family space, let me look at multifamily. There's room for team members to play, right? And you can definitely specialize a lot. One of the self-limiting beliefs that I had to overcome for me was I need people and I want to focus on one thing. I want to get really good at it. And so that leads into building a team is picking not only, everyone says, pick one thing you're good at and go, but it's like, not only did I want to pick one thing I'm good at, but I wanted to be challenged in a way that I wanted to grow. And so we've talked a lot about my very analytical background and I'm very capable of underwriting, you know, but I think a lot of people would assume that I'm a deal finder and I'm the underwriter and I don't play that primary role actually. So I'm leaning in towards investor relations. I have a partner who is primary underwriter in our group, but I poke holes in his models and everything. But you know, as far as like mental health and everything, it's good for me to be in front of people. I thrive on talking to people, understanding, you know, what motivates them. It's a perpetual cycle, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. talking to people, understanding what they're going sure. through and sharing, you know, what happens to you with them. So I'm playing investor relations as a primary role and underwriting as a secondary right now. That's great. And I love the I want to focus on the overcoming the self-limiting beliefs. We all struggle with that to some degree, whether you want to admit it or not. What tools or weapons do you have that you want to share with our listeners to help overcome that? Is it being part of mastermind groups or reading books or what's your weapon of choice? Oh, it's people. It's definitely people. So there's tons of virtual meetups. I think, you know, as a result of COVID, you could argue they're virtual, they're physical, you know, nothing replaces an in-person meetup and having a face-to-face versus, you know, just talking to someone 15 minutes over the phone or anything like that. So I would opt for in-person meetups over the virtual meetups, although just ease of access for the virtual will make, you know, they'll be around for a long time, no doubt. And so 
if I just focused on educational content, I could answer that a million different ways, mm. right? Because there's this book for that problem. There's, you know, so it's really a culmination of, you know, making sure you have your daily routine and check, right? You're doing things to get 1% better every day on a personal level before you invest time in your business. So having that balance, you know, making sure that you have, you're allocating time in your day for your family, as well as that you're doing things to keep your confidence level up. There was something else I was going to mention too, as far as that goes, but habits can be engineered. I'm an engineer, so I can't help but use that word. But you know, you, you're, you can you can use your daily habits to kind of hack your life to the way that yeah. you want it to be. So it all starts with, I think, just kind of the compound effect of starting something small. So I'm a big James Green fan or James mm-hmm. Clear fan of uh, Atomic Habits. Yep. And then also the Miracle Morning from Hal Elrod. So I write three things that I'm thankful for every day, and then what are three things I got to do? So it keeps me motivated, allows me focus, but it also keeps me humble, knowing that there's tons of things I got to be thankful for. I can be thankful for. My favorite one is I'm thankful that I woke up this morning. You know, it's, <laughs> it's so yeah. simple. It's like, there's so many things that we take for granted in this first world problem kind of country, you know, but you're right. And it's funny. I saw your newsletter a few weeks back about with the atomic habits being a highlight. I just released the same thing a week before. So yes, I thought I was late to the party of reading that. Maybe I was, but I thought that was a really helpful, but really simple little tips in there that they're kind of common sense when you get back and think about them and applying them in a systematic way really helps you get through the tough points of your day or tough points of your week or when you get stuck, how to really dial in your habits. And you and I are both technical people, right? Because we think similarly. So I think that's really powerful. Did you start with a kind of a master plan when you kicked off, hey, I want to, I want to build this business of like planning out the next two years, or did you kind of just start the concept and build from there? For me, the biggest like long-term plan, long-term decision that I had to make was do I want to focus on multifamily or do I want to just be a private equity firm and maybe open a blind fund and invest, you know, cross asset classes. And I decided that I guess, given the current state and the longevity of multifamily, I decided I want, you know, year three to five for me is that I want to establish a well-rounded apartment syndication firm. So I want to, you know, bring asset management in-house. I want to bring acquisitions in-house. That was about the longest term decision I had made. The shortest term decision I had made was, I want to write a book. I want to create a sample deal deck and I need to, you know, finalize my company overview. That was kind of like one to three for me as far as the transition goes. I liked how you kind of focused on here's the attributes of what I want my business to be. And here's some of the outcomes. And you're like, I'll figure out the rest. And I think that's pretty cool. Cool. So, I mean, Tommy has a self-proclaimed black sheep approach to his marketing and looking at director seller and finding deals. Could you walk us through some of that? I mean, there's lots of people, 2022, I'm just going to timestamp where we are right now. Very, very hot market across the board. Tertiary markets have become the new primaries, right? So how are you finding sure. deals? What's your process look like at a 10,000 foot level? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Director seller is really important because if we're looking at acquisitions, and I talk a lot about leading goals and lagging goals, right? So your lagging goals being, I want to close down a deal before you know HQ3 starts. And then your leading goals is what are your goals around the activity that feeds that, right? So what are the number of leads that convert to the number of offers to convert to the number of under contract to convert to the number of closes, that type of things. And so if I'm reverse engineering all of that to close in one deal, I need to have a good lead pipeline. The things I'm not sacrificing are my markets because I have to demonstrate excellence in those. I have to know those better than anyone else. So I'm looking at you know deals that are Louisville down to Huntsville that obviously includes Middle Tennessee area, Nashville, MSA but also including East Tennessee, 
So Chattanooga and Knoxville are too good to ignore. And so I've picked my markets. And now the question becomes, how can I create a lead volume to help me convert on something before Q3? I can't get to that number by just, you know, getting stuff from Marcus and Millichap. And so that's where it became an easy decision as to whether or not to start doing direct to seller this year really strikes me as a no brainer. So our approach is a little different. So my partner and I, I'll get into the nitty, maybe I'll go high level, but we're actually partnering with a broker. Okay. At a high level. So we're bringing the properties that, you know, fit the 30 to 200 units, 1980s or later build to him. And then we're saying, okay, Mr. Broker, can you give us co-star underwriting reports for these? And so then we determine, are these top of market? Is there juice left to squeeze? If they are top of market, we pass. And then if there is juice left to squeeze, our initial touch, we have some good assumptions based on the underwriting that we've done and other deals in our market, but our first touch is an offer. So let me back up a step. So you and your partner are generating a list, you know, however you're doing that, you're saying, hey, I want to narrow down on these 150 properties across Nashville, you know, surrounding Tennessee, parts of Louisville, you mentioned, right? So I've got these markets, I'm dialing down to my, let's say 150 properties. Are you doing the skip trace from there to, to find the owners and then giving that to the broker? Or are you saying, hey, Mr. Broker, go figure it out. Here's the properties we want to go after. We're leaning on the broker to do that at this okay. point. That's something I kind of asked him. I was like, are you doing skip tracing? He said, no, I'm just doing what's in CoStar at this point. And so, but the joke there, we and we, we met at the turn of the year to talk about this and how this would execute. But the joke was, he was like, I do this every day. Mm-hmm. Let, let me do this, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and, sure. So I think most of the information is coming directly from CoStar. So we're relying a little bit on that one. But I think if we do have plenty of just dead follow-ups and dead leads, maybe we revisit those and do skip traces on those and try to rehash that conversation. If you don't mind me asking, what's your primary mechanism for communication from the broker to the seller? Is it, you know, is he texting, emails? Is it all cold calls or all the above postcards, that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. So our initial touch is an offer letter. So that is either a mail or email to, you know, whatever we have on record. So that is more or less a pretty cold touch. Um, We usually put something out there that we think is 85 to 90% fair market value, knowing that it's a human tendency to ask for more and that we can get to their number. But we just want to have a discussion where there's no or low competition. And so, but after the first touch, we virtually have no responses on the first touch. Then he does follow up calls to, hey, did you get my mailer? You know, did you get my letter or my email, something like that? And that's really where the magic has been made based on our experience so far. So you're doing this without any T12 financials, rent roll, or just kind of going off of what you, whatever you can get, you could say CoStar, Yardy, whatever. You're just firing sure. off, hey, 90% of market value, and make some assumptions, I'll dial it in later. That is an yeah. unorthodox approach. Okay. For okay. sure. For sure. Cool. At least in like Middle Tennessee, you can use about a 45% expense ratio. We find Louisville is closer to 50% expense ratio. So yep. those are some of our key assumptions that are driving at least the middle line, you know, the bottom line being the profits, right? But if all of that is there for the expenses, then we can kind of understand the income based on what are the rents showing on apartments.com or what is CoStar reporting, stuff like that. Really interesting. So are you guys getting exclusivity to these deals with that broker? I assume they can't go like, hey, take your list and then run it to 10 different people after the fact or or you don't know. (laughs) We would have first right refusal for whatever is generated for those. And so there's going to be some situations where there's no problems to solve on a property and they decide that they want to go full retail and we're probably not going to be their buyers, but hey, we've generated a lead for the broker and he quote unquote owes us, you know, something. Okay. (laughs) I I don't know what that looks like, but. So he does this all, like he absorbs all the cost and time of the outreach. You guys, do you fund any of the campaigns? I'm just, this is really interesting to me. So, okay. 
So really cool. So I guess there's pros and cons of every approach. I, this is the first I've heard of using the broker as the means to contact the seller. But pros, big pro is really none of your time invested in pulling the list. No cost invested in campaigns and mailers and you know using VAs. I'm assuming the broker is doing it all himself or does he leverage VAs as well? He's been hiring mostly in-house people. Okay. So I don't think he has any virtual assistants, mm. but he leans really heavily on his director of operations for a lot of this. Really cool. No, I love it. Thanks for sharing. I know I said I kept it at 10,000 feet. I felt like we took it down to 1,000. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Well, so, it's been exciting. Some of the results so far, if you're okay with talking about them. I love it. Okay. Uh, so we've, so we've sent over 20 offers as of last week. So it's been $217 million in offers total this year. Some of that has been on-market offers, but most of that has just been unsolicited off-market offers. That's over 20 offers. We've had two people come back so far and that we know of. There's going to be more based on the recent discussion we've had, but two of the responses have been encouraging. One person said, I like the way you do business. I do not want to list my property because he had just a bad experience in going through the broker and doing best and final and, and going through all those hoops. We often don't think about the burden that the seller goes through when putting something on market, but he's like, I don't want to sell this property. I want to sell two others in four to six months. Let's keep in touch. Another point of feedback was I want to sell, let me get the managing members on board and we'll talk. And so that's been you know, some examples of some of the points of feedback there. I think some people would argue that anything over 50 units in this campaign would be a waste of time, but there's plenty of individual owners that own in the hundred unit range where they have multiple properties. Yeah. So, you know, anything and everything that fits the 30 to 200 unit box for us. So you mentioned 20 offers, 200 plus million offers. That's awesome. How, when did you start officially? Was it end of 21? That's just this year. Oh, wow. So 2022 calendar year was the first time you started. Wow. That's, that's great. It's only like three months in. For sure. Yeah, we're throwing so much wet spaghetti against the wall, Andrew. I, you know, there's got to be something yeah. that sticks in. <laughs> I, well, I remember, I know you and I met at Best Ever this year. Yeah. And I remember, t- I remember hearing one of the conferences, discussions, I, I think it was Jason Yarusi that said, hey, one of my main takeaway was there's no best way. There's a lot of trial and error. Just be willing to experiment and see what sticks. I've heard that again and again and again. So you can't come in thinking you have it all figured out. <laughs> no doubt. Love it. So if you had, you know, I'll ask as we start to wrap up here, one more question for you. If you had to start over again, you know, a couple of years back, what would you do differently? I guess one of the driving factors for me was I couldn't find an alignment between my passions and my work life. So I think that probably could have been relieved if I was just talking to more people and letting everyone know what I was interested in. So I would have started talking to my network sooner about my interest and my hobbies in investing in general. I kind of grew up where money wasn't really talked about a whole lot. And so trying to shed that would have been helpful for me. So right now I've been digging the well while we you know focus on acquisitions. So it's been good so far. As far as mechanical advice to starting your own business and going full-time, I started in August. I wish I would have gotten on my wife's benefits earlier. Mm-hmm. So there's about a, a five-month time span where I had no benefits. I was you know quote unquote at risk. And so if you can start at the turn of the year, that's probably better where you can, you go through enrollment, open enrollment, and you get on your spouse's benefits there. But also since I started in August, there was no chance that I could file my taxes as real estate professional. Yeah. Wow. That's a really practical tip. And it's something that wasn't even in my mind or thinking about. That's really great. So as we wrap up here, I mean, we covered so much ground here in the last 20 minutes or so for someone that maybe wants to talk about career change or talking about active or passive investing or talk about direct to seller, kick some ideas around. How do we get a hold of you? 
For sure. I'm definitely active on social media. I'm also on Facebook. Look up Tommy Brandt. Last name is B as in boy, R-A-N-T as in Tommy. A lot of people like to put a Y or a D in my last name, but they're not there. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> nice. also got website tbcapitalgroup.com. TB is in Tommy Brandt, capitalgroup.com. I did finish that book, thankfully, that I was talking about before. It's called The Passive Investor's Guide to the Multifamily Universe. I'm not monetizing it. It's a free download on the website, but me being an engineer, it is very data-driven. So I think that no matter your experience level, there's probably some data points that are going to surprise somebody. And so, but also I put my calendar on my website. So fun fact, you can always secure 30 minutes with me on my connect page of tbcapitalgroup.com. Take him up on that. It's great having you on the show, Tommy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.